Good morning. It is an absolute pleasure to be here this morning. As Andy mentioned, uh, I've known Andy for several years now, probably close to a decade, I would think, uh, maybe a little bit more. And I'm sure you have all experienced this. Every time I get to spend time with Andy, my spirit is refreshed. There's just something about the way that he interacts with people that makes you feel more relaxed and more yourself and more connected to God the Father. So I, I really appreciate that about you. And, and uh, I certainly jumped at the opportunity to come and, and share a little bit with, with you this morning. Getting to share this morning on the topic of exceeding in our family relationships really gets to combine two great passions in my life, which is I love to preach, I love to share the Word of God, and I love the topic of families. That's why I became a licensed marriage and family therapist. That's what I do day in and day out because I absolutely love it. It is messy. It is an absolute mess. Most of the time, families are. Uh, but it's, it is really rewarding, enriching work. I never know what I'm going to walk into. Most of the time, most, most of my sessions, I, I don't really know what I'm going to walk into. But I know that God is there. I know that God is at work. It just so happened this week as I was preparing Somebody had posted a joke on uh, Facebook, popped up on my newsfeed, and it was so appropriate, I thought I would share. It said, a couple who have been married for 55 years was asked what their secret was to a long, happy marriage. And the husband replied, we always go to dinner twice a week. She goes on Tuesdays, and I go on Thursdays. <laughs> It's a little, little bit funny, but it really illustrates something that gets broken in relationships and in marriages, where what starts off as this incredible, beautiful, idyllic, vision-oriented gift becomes something to avoid or becomes something that is painful. As Andy mentioned, I do work as a marriage and family therapist with Grace Clinic Christian Counseling. Uh, our main office is in Winter Park, although I have a satellite office in Longwood, and then I also have a satellite office in Ocala that I go to once a week. So it's funny, new clients come in, I'm like, yeah, uh, this is my office on Tuesdays. <laughs> this is my office on Wednesdays. This is my office on Thursdays. But I get to serve in this role. I've been uh, working as a therapist now for about 18 years, I think it is, um, and uh, have really enjoyed it. But I didn't always work as a marriage and family therapist. In fact, for about nine years, my first job out of undergrad was working in campus ministry for a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Did that for about nine years uh, at, the, at Florida State University in Tallahassee, go Knowles, uh, over in uh, Pensacola at UWF, and then also at the Evil Empire in Gainesville. Um, <laughs> sorry for those of you who don't agree with that. You're wrong, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> One of, the, one of the things that I, that I primarily did in my role with campus ministry was to do student leadership development. Because InterVarsity is a student-led ministry, 
our main role as campus ministers was to develop student leaders. And what we saw over the years was there were many times where students would come to us from such broken, dysfunctional families that we would spend quite a bit of time, maybe, maybe two, three years, trying to help them put the pieces of their lives back together before they really could engage in some meaningful ways in terms of leadership. And it got me thinking, what if, what if I were able to help families be what God designed them to be so that they were producing children, then students and adults who were healthy, were what God designed them to be so that when they hit the college campus, they could assume some of those leadership roles much, much sooner. It's kind of like this. If you were, you know, say you were out, we have a lake here, but if we had a river, right, you're out of the river and you're fishing and, and you notice some pollution, some debris in the water and, and you're like, oh, I got to get this pollution. We got to get this trash out and you start pulling the trash out, but there's more and more that comes downstream, more and more that comes downstream. It's effective, certainly, to be removing the, the trash, but it's probably much more effective to go upstream and find out what's polluting the river to begin with and try and change that. And that's really what I felt like God had called me to, was to help try and figure out a way to not have these families be quite so broken, quite so dysfunctional. What I was experiencing with these hurting students was really the result of these dysfunctional families that didn't really know how to have and maintain healthy attachments. What do we mean by attachment? What, it, what does that mean? Attachment is a deep and enduring emotional bond that connects one person to another across time and space. Let me say that one more time just so we're all on the same page. Attachment is a deep and enduring emotional bond that connects one person to another across time and space. This concept of attachment, well, you know, what we know about it, what we've learned about it has, has developed through the work of many researchers over many years. Probably the most notable would be uh, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. Um, but the truth is, even, even they were really just discovering something that God knew all along and God had planned and designed for all along. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. If you have been around church at all, if you've read your Bible much, especially in the book of Genesis, you are probably already aware of the fact that all through the creation account, God did something. He said, let there be this, and there was this, and God saw it, and he said it was good. He planned this, and he said it was good. He planned this, and he said it was good. He planned this, and he said it was good. And this is the very first time in recorded scripture that we see God saying that something wasn't good. God said that it's not good for man to be alone. We were designed for a relationship because we were designed, we were, we were planned, we're made in his image, and he is a relational God. God, the Trinity, right? God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in relationship from, from before there was time. And we're made in his image to be in relationship. And so when man was alone, God said, this isn't good. And by the way, he hasn't changed his mind on that. He has not issued any recall. 
It's still not good for man to be alone. Now, that doesn't mean, that does not mean if you're single that, oh, you, you can't possibly be all that God intended you to be. It means that if you are isolated, if you live apart from everyone, then you are not experiencing what God designed you to experience. And so it's not good for man to be alone. And so God makes a helper. God calls us into relationship. God calls us into family. God establishes the family, right? The, the book <laughs> that we follow, right? The scripture starts with a marriage, starts with a family. And it ends with a marriage, by the way, right? The beginning and the end and all through. Marriage is highlighted. Marriage is important. Family is important. He's called us to this, but... As Andy pointed out with the story about the funeral yesterday, as all of you have experienced at one time or another, it doesn't always seem to go the way God planned it or designed it, does it? Something went wrong. Something went terribly wrong. We read on in the Genesis account that sin enters the world and it wreaks havoc on our relationships. We know that God loves marriage and family, but the enemy of our soul hates them, absolutely hates marriage and family and love and connection because it looks like God, and he is the enemy of God. We see this in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and I'll, I'll just jump in a little bit where it says that the sins of the fathers are revisited on the children to the third and fourth generation. This is the effect. This is the effect of the fall. This is, this is where the problem comes in, that the sins of the fathers are revisited on the, th to, on the third and fourth generation. That doesn't mean that God punishes you because your parents did something wrong. Your, your, your dad uh, cheated on his taxes, and so you uh, will always have problems with finances. Now, that's not the way it works. The way it works is that the way in which your family was broken has had a deep impact on who you are and how you developed as a human being and how you learned how to relate to other people. And so that brokenness tends to repeat itself generation to generation, right? But here's the good news. Verse 10, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So even though the enemy has his sights set on families and marriages to destroy and to cause this perpetual brokenness from generation to generation, God's plan, God's plan is much far reaching, much more far reaching. So some of you out there are probably saying, yeah, I, I know this, JJ, I've lived this. I absolutely know that the completely chaotic, horrible family I grew up in has had a tremendous impact on me. And some of you may be sitting there going, you know, I don't understand why we make such a big deal. I mean, come on, everybody's got problems here and there, but you know, my family was pretty good and I, you know, I did all right. So I want us to watch just a short clip. This, you can find this on YouTube. It's called the still face experiment. And uh, I want you just, it's just a couple minutes long, but I want us to just watch it together and then we're gonna unpack it a little bit. So if we can pull that video up, that would be great. Babies this young are extremely responsive to the emotions and the reactivity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying oh, 30, 40 years ago. 
when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. Oh. And she gives a greeting to the baby, the baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this, and then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. Okay. It's a little like the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is that normal stuff that goes on, that we all do with our kids. The bad is when something bad happens, but the infant can overcome it. After all, when you stop the still face, the mother and the baby start to play again. The ugly is when you don't give the child any chance to get back to the good there's no reparation, and they're stuck in that really ugly situation. What did you think of that? How many of you were feeling some anxiety and some distress when the mother was still-faced and the, and the baby is agitated? Right? There's some of you, some, some people will watch that video, that just that two-minute clip, and they'll be, they'll have a, a, a a severe reaction to it because it elicits a memory for them. It elicits an experience for them that was very painful. And this was just a couple of minutes, and you saw how quickly that, that child responded, not to abuse, not to anger from the mother, but to simply this still face, this lack of connection with the mother, that the baby was so agitated by that, right? in just a couple of minutes. Now, can you imagine extending that out? Not over minutes, but over weeks, months, years, right? What kind of impact do you think that might have on a person's development, how they view themselves, how they understand interactions with others? It has profound impact on us. I want to be very clear in what we're doing today. Because sometimes you can, you can start talking about things like this and you get, 
you can kind of get lost in the weeds of the, of the psychology. I want to be clear that what we're going to talk about today, what we're doing today, is theologically infused and informed. We want to have, we want to have a theologically informed psychology, not the other way around. In other words, our basis for what we're looking at and what we're talking about is theology, is what God says is good and true. But we also want to be informed. We want to, you know, pillage the Egyptians, right? We want to take uh, everything that has been learned in terms of human interaction to help us better understand what God's intent and what God's plan and what God's rule is for us. So with that in mind, when we look at a video like that and we think about this, this desperate need for families to be able to connect with their children uh, so that they can then grow up to know how to connect with others. Um, we want to look at what works, but also what, what gets in the way or what gets broken along the way. So we want to look at, there's, there's basically uh, five different styles of relating that we're going to look at. And I'm going to try and go over those as briefly as possible uh, so that we don't run out of time because I understand we're supposed to go somewhere around an hour, right, for the sermon. Is that? No, no I know. I know. <laughs> I know that it happened recently, too. <laughs> um, but we're going we're gonna to try to hold hold the line here. So uh, the first style is called a secure connector. A secure connector is someone that grows up in a family where the parents attune to who the child is. They know the child. They know what the child likes, what the child dislikes. They, they know the child's personality. They pay attention to the child. The parents are trustworthy. The, the child can, can trust that the parent's going to show up for them and know what to expect from them. The parent allows the child to have feelings. The parent's teach the child to deal with their feelings in a healthy, respectful way. And the parents allow the child to be a kid, to make mistakes and to learn from them. So you may be sitting there going, well, I grew up in a pretty good home. My parents were good people. And by the way, I did too. Listen, I, I love my parents. Um, they, they did a fantastic job. Um, but they also messed up at times. <laughs> they weren't perfect. And neither are you and neither were your parents. Um, but maybe you grew up in a healthy home. Maybe you grew up in a home that really the parents knew what to do. So here's the, here are some clear indicators of whether or not you are secure, uh, a secure attack, uh, excuse me, a secure connector. Do you know how to say no? Do you know how to say no? If you don't, you might not be. Can you take risks or do risks terrify you? Can you ask for help? Can you work toward compromise? Or does it have to be your way all the way, all the time? Can you say you're sorry? If you can do those things, chances are you, have, you probably are a secure connector, at least at some level. But if some of those you were like, that's hard for me, you might, you might fall into one of the other categories that we're going to talk about today. All right, so the second category is the avoider. The avoider grows up in a home where the parent tends to be overwhelmed by the child's emotions. And so the parent encourages very little limited expression of emotion and does not comfort when, when emotions are expressed. The child then learns to restrict their emotions and their needs and they become independent, highly independent. Because if, they, if they've learned that if they express their needs, it overwhelms the parent. 
So how do you know if you're an avoider? You might look like this. Do you seem to have a very small range and intensity of emotions? Very small range and intensity of emotions. Right? If someone asks you how you feel and you either say, I don't know, or you have one emotion that you come back with every single time, and by the way, good, fine, and tired are not emotions. <laughs> so when someone asks you how you feel and you say, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm tired, none of those are emotions. Those are states of being. Emotions are things like sad, angry, happy. All right? So, do you have a small range of emotions and, and a very small intensity of emotions? You might be an avoider. Do you regularly avoid conversations about feelings? People start talking about feelings, or maybe, maybe probably they're not even here. They saw what the topic was. They said, nope, I'm going fishing. There's no way I'm going to sit and listen to that. Do you regularly avoid conversations about feelings? Do you often ask for space, especially from those that you're closest to? Do you often ask for space? Do you need to be, uh, do you tend to be task oriented rather than relationship oriented? Do you allow yourself to cry in front of others or do you always, oh, sorry, 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 I'm crying. Chances are you could be an avoider, or at least have that as part of your mix. Okay, next is the pleaser. The pleaser grows up in a home where the parent tends to be anxious, angry, and or critical. Anxious, angry, and or critical. The child learns that the world is scary. The parent tends to rescue the child when they are experiencing distress. The child is having a hard time doing something and the parent swoops in and helps them. What do they call that? You have heard the phrase? Helicopter parenting, exactly. I can't quite get the shoelace. Oh, honey, let me do it for you, right? And then at 19, right, they're walking through the mall and the mom is tying his shoe, right? <laughs> it's a sad, sad thing. Sorry. So the parent tends to rescue the child when they're experiencing distress. The child comes to believe that they don't have what it takes to handle challenges. The child is often told, don't be afraid. Don't be upset. Don't feel what you feel. The child may, may end up being separated from a parent due to illness, death, divorce, addiction, or possibly deployment. So how do you know if you're a pleaser? Well, do you feel like you live under a high level of stress, like all the time? Is that you? Do you always want to be with your partner and feel threatened if they ever want time alone? Do you find yourself always taking care of others? I can hear the whispers. Oh yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> Do you find yourself always taking care of others? Do you have a high need for feedback from others on how you are doing? How am I doing? Is this okay? Was this good enough? Is that enough for you? Do you have a difficult time making decisions? Do you avoid risks? Does it feel like everyone wants too much from you, but when they ask, you rarely know what it is that you want? Do you feel scared much of the time? Well, if some of those ring true for you, it's a very good chance that you are a pleaser. Now, I want to say this here, that most of us will not fall all in one category and that's it. We'll kind of be spread out. So I'm an avoider, but I'm an avoider pleaser. I'm almost like right on the line. But the thing is, my pleasing 
all of my pleasing activity, like I do this for you and do this for you because I want to make sure that you're happy, is really just to avoid emotion, right? I'm going to do this for you so that you won't ask anything of me and you certainly won't express a negative emotion or ask me how I'm feeling, right? No, no, I can't talk about how I'm feeling. I'm busy doing this for you, right? So my pleasing is really just a way to avoid. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, but I ride in both of those camps pretty, pretty uh, naturally. Okay, the next one is the vacillator. The vacillator is someone that grows up in a home where the parent sometimes sees the child's needs and sometimes doesn't see the child's needs. The focus is on the parent's needs for emotional availability, excuse me, availability. So it's not really focused on what the child needs, it's focused on what the parent needs. The child's expressions are limited, extreme, and sporadic in response to the perceived mood of the parent. Okay, we started to see a little bit of that, right, with the, in the video. When, when suddenly the, the mother's not responding the way that the child was used to, the child, you know, starts to do some of the behavior that they're used to getting a reaction from. That didn't work, and so what did they do? Up the ante, right? I've got to be more extreme. I've got to get a response. What's, what's happening? Would you answer me? Right? Okay, that's what it looks like to grow up in the home uh, where, where vacillating is the, is the relationship style. The parent is inconsistent and unpredictable. The child becomes confused and hypervigilant to try to predict and control the relationship, but angry and anxious at having to wait. So, how do you know if you're a vacillator? Well, do you experience love at first sight? It's wonderful, it's fantastic. But then relationships tend to drop off really quickly. Do your relationships tend to be extremely intense, especially at the beginning? But then they're evil, <laughs> they're awful, get away from me. Do you find yourself searching for your soulmate and disappointed when your partner does not maintain that intense romance that they started with? Do you describe your relationships as either we're really great or we're really terrible, right? Have you been in those relationships where, where, yeah, when we're good, we're really good, but when we're bad, oh my God, we're horrible, right? You might be experiencing a vacillator or you might be the vacillator. Do you tend to leave relationships when things are difficult rather than stay and work things out? Is it easy for you to see the faults in others but difficult to see your own. Do you tend to believe that if your partner loved you, they would know what you need without having to tell them? Yes? <laughs> some, are, some are quietly agreeing with that one. Okay, so if most of those fit you, you could be a vacillator. Finally, let's look at the chaotic, and I'm gonna go through this one really quick because this is, this is a rather extreme scenario. Unfortunately, it's more and more common, but it's still not the norm. Uh, this is the chaotic. And the chaotic can fall into one of two categories, either the controller or the victim. But if you're the chaotic relational style, you tend to, be, uh, you tend to have grown up in homes with serious problems like abuse, mental illness, and or multiple addictions. Relationships are destructive and dangerous. They're not safe and nurturing. Parents don't relieve stress, they create it. The child needs the parent for survival, but the parents are also the source of danger and fear. 
The child's needs are disregarded or, or overwhelming to the parent, causing outrage and withdrawal by the parent. The parent may respond with abuse or neglect or both. The child is confused, causing even more anxiety and anger. The controller learns to dominate in order to reduce stress. The victim fearfully yields to keep peace in order to reduce stress. So how do you know if you are a chaotic controller or victim? Do you detach from any feelings of pain or neediness? I don't need anything. I'm okay. I'm totally fine. I'm a rock. I'm an island. Do you minimize the chaos you experienced in your childhood? Sure. I mean, everybody, it, everybody had problems. I mean, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, we'd go weeks without, you know, having any food in the house. But I mean, you know, who didn't? Do you have difficulty coming up with specific memories from your childhood? Do you gravitate toward very intense or stressful situations and relationships? In other words, do you somehow feel more alive when there's this really intense but also dangerous aspect to relationships? Do you feel anxious when things are calm and going well because you're, you're expecting this impending doom to come? Very good chance that you, you grew up in a chaotic environment and became a chaotic uh, connector. So, what do we do? What do we do with all this information? That's nice, JJ. Nice little list. Great. I fit in some of those categories or whatever, but what do I do? So what? Well, it's a good question. First, we want to recognize that this is not a fixed state. Just because you grew up in a particular type of family doesn't mean that you're forever assigned that role. You're a vacillator. You'll always be a vacillator. You can never be something other than a vacillator. No, it's not a fixed state. It is not a fixed state. God is at work. We see this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. John Eldridge does a good job of unpacking this for us. Jesus didn't come just to save the lost, though he did. He came to save us, right? But he didn't come just to save us, to get us to heaven. He came to restore that which was lost and broken and damaged in the fall and all the subsequent generations. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? What was lost was that secure connection that we were designed for. He often does this restorative work through what we call at our clinic redemptive relationship. You see, we, we often experience pain in our lives and trouble in our lives because of broken relationships, but God brings healing through what's called a redemptive relationship. Sometimes that redemptive relationship is going to be a spouse or another family member, or a friend, someone that you go to church with. But you may also want to consider, and this is self-serving, but that's okay, you may also want to consider working with a professional to help heal some of the wounds you encountered, especially if you did grow up in that chaotic environment. If you grew up in that chaotic environment, um, good chance that you're going to benefit from some professional help to help heal some of those wounds. Second thing that we want to remember is that it's not intended, this, this whole process is not intended to be some sort of familial blame, blame game, right? It's not, oh, well, you know, let's go hunt down. It's my mom and dad's fault, you know. That's the reason why I'm so, you know, irritable all the time. It's my mom and dad's fault, right? That's not what this is about. We're not getting a pass here, right? This is not, a, this is not an excuse to just continue to behave the way you do. And, by the way, 
for those of you spouses, it's not so that you can now say, see, I knew your parents screwed you up. Now I've got a professional who gave me, he, he, he gave me data, right? I know now why you're so screwed up. That's not what this is about. We're not using it as an excuse. We're not looking to blame someone else. While we're certainly not responsible for the sin that was done to us in our broken families of origin, we are responsible for our sinful response to the sin that was done to us. And that's what we want to look at, right? We want to take a good hard look at how that sin that was done to us has impacted us so that we can learn how to have a healthy, godly response to it. And it's also important that we remember that God's rate of redemption is not the same as ours or someone else's rate of destruction. Just because you grew up for 18 years in a broken family doesn't mean it's going to take you 18 years to unlearn all of that. Okay? God's rate of redemption is much better than our rate of destruction. Okay? Make sense? Okay, good. Fourth, we need to recognize that you can't give what you never got. You can't give what you never got. And so if you want to have healthy relationships with your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your coworkers, your neighbors, if you never learned how to be healthy, if you never learned how to do healthy relationships, you can't give away what you never got. So you need to look at what it is that was lacking so that you can offer something more. In other words, if you want to exceed in relationships, if we want to experience this abundant life that we're talking about from John 10, right? then we have to look at what gets in the way of that. What's, what's missing for us? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So what we want to look at is the fact that if God has given us everything we need, if all of my needs have been met in Christ, then I'm not looking to my spouse or my child to meet my needs. My needs have already been met, right? So then I can actually offer ministry to my spouse or my child or my parent or my neighbor or whomever. But primarily we're looking at spouses and children. I can offer ministry to them free of charge, there's no quid pro quo here, right? I'm not doing this for you to get a certain response, to elicit a certain response from you. Because if I'm doing that, by the way, that's really just a fancy way of describing manipulation, right? I do this for you to get you to respond a certain way. No, if, I, if all of my needs have been met in Christ, then I don't need you to respond a certain way. I, I want you to. I want you to respond a certain way, and if you don't, if you don't respond in the way that I want you to, in a healthy way, that's going to hurt, but I don't need you to. It's not going to destroy me if you don't respond the way that I want you to. So I'm able to love, I'm able to serve, I'm able to give away. If I'm living out of that overflow, right? If God has met all of my needs, if I'm living this abundant life and God is filling me, then I can minister to my spouse and my children out of the overflow rather than trying to live out of or minister to them out of some deficit. Okay. So let me kind of wrap up here. Yeah, we should wrap up here. All right. This is not easy work. This is not easy work. I loved the worship music and, and especially this whole idea of, of calling these hearts that are dead back to life, calling the dry bones to come alive, 
right? That's, that's what I get to do day in and day out. It's a pretty cool gig, right? But it's hard work. I tell people this all the time, especially couples when they come in for couples counseling. I'll say, listen, you know, especially if they're doing premarital counseling, that's really fun because then you can kind of set them up for better success. I'll say, listen, if a man or a woman works really, 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 I mean really hard, if they work really hard, they can make pretty decent spouses. But no matter how hard they work, they make lousy saviors. Okay? And so if you are looking for your spouse to meet your needs that God is supposed to meet, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break down and it's going to break down quick, right? So this is hard work. It's hard to keep turning my focus back to the Lord and letting him meet my needs, but it's important. It's vital that we do that, that we let Christ meet our needs so that we're not demanding that from our spouse. So finally, in all of this, we want to be kind, patient, compassionate, gracious to one another. We need to learn each other's stories so that we can have that compassion for one another. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So be gracious. Understand that because you're, you know, your, your spouse grew up in a, in a home where, where anytime they expressed emotion, it was overwhelming to their parents to the point that they learned to just shut all that down, right? So when you're going, why won't you share with me? Why won't you open up to me? Why won't you tell me how you're feeling? And you take it very personally as though they're trying to do this to you. <laughs> Understanding their story helps you offer compassion that they never got that. They never saw that on display. They never learned that, but they can learn. And so you can enter into that together. You can choose to love and learn to love each other together. God puts us in these relationships, these marriage relationships with one another, um, because we need help, <laughs> because we need to be we need to be challenged. Uh, I often will equate or, or uh, use the analogy of a cauldron, right? You know what a cauldron is, right? For smelting precious metals, right? So they, they, put, you know, they put the raw material in the cauldron, and, they, and what do they do? They heat it up, right? Whole lot of heat, and as, that, as that's heated up, all the impurities kind of bubble up to the surface, and then they skim it off, right? And that's how, they, that's how they develop precious metals that are free of all these impurities. That's what marriage is. That's what families are. It's this giant cauldron that God turns up this incredible heat, right? And all the impurities come floating to the surface. And he does that out of his kindness so that those impurities aren't resting in us anymore, but so that we can be skimmed off. So we can be more and more precious, more and more in the image of the one that called us. So if any of this has sparked any interest in you at all, and you haven't completely shut down and avoided everything I've had to say, um, I want to I wanna offer uh, a reading list to go deeper. There's a, several books that will help in this regard. Uh, the first one is How We Love by Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. A lot of what I shared in terms of the relationship styles are uh, straight out of that book. How We Love, it's, it's very much written to a layman's perspective. You don't have to have a background in counseling or psychology or anything like that to understand it. But How We Love by Mylan and Kay Yurkovich will help you look at your own relationship style and your spouses and how they either work or don't work together. That's a lot of fun. Okay, so How We Love is great. If you want to go deeper and you really like science-y type stuff, read Mindsight 
and the neurobiology of we, both by Dr. Daniel Siegel. He looks at not just this idea of attachment and the way that we relate, but actually breaks it down to the neurobiological level of what's happening in our brains, in our nervous system, in our, in our mind as we're learning how to relate to one another. It's fascinating if you like that sort of thing. If you don't, you'll be bored out of your skull. So don't read. <laughs> All right. And then finally, uh, The Marriage Builder by Dr. Larry Crabb. Dr. Crabb does a great job of looking at this idea of letting God be our complete source of everything that we need so that we can then minister to others out of the overflow. Um, the first three you can get on uh, Audible. So if you're someone who likes to listen to books rather than read them, you can get all three of those on Audible. The Marriage Builder is not available on Audible. Sorry, but it's still an excellent, re excellent read. Okay. Any questions? Um, like I said, some of you, some of this information may stir up some things for you that you're like, oh, yeah, that's me, and, and I realize that this happens to me a lot in relationships. I probably need to take a look at this deeper. I really do want to recommend, you know, uh, set up an appointment with Andy, uh, see if there may be some people in the church that can be really helpful in that regard. Uh, if not, I'm happy to offer my services. And, and by the way, we've got a whole uh, clinic of, of wonderful professionals, um, and so maybe a better fit for, with one of them. But I definitely don't recommend that you just go, well, I know it's broken, but um, you know, it, I am what I am. Right? No, that's not exceeding. That's complacency. If we want to exceed, we've got to be willing to put ourselves under God's knife and let him do his work. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that family and relationships were your idea from the beginning. And you have given them to us as a gift, not only to enjoy relationships, but also to be changed by them so we can be more like you. Uh, so help us, to, help us to love and risk and trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.